Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Dublin Story Slam podcast. The Dublin Story Slam is an open mic storytelling night that takes place every month in Dublin's Sugar Club. And each night, we invite members of the audience to get up and share true personal stories that are inspired by a different theme each night. At the end of the night, an overall winner is chosen by judges in the audience, and then they go on to compete for the title of Grand Slam Champion. But this podcast is all about celebrating stories that may not have necessarily won the Story Slam, but ones that we think are definitely worth sharing. So this is the Dublin Story Slam podcast. Over the holidays, we had time to to press pause and reflect and to listen back basically to a bunch of stories. And we have some amazing stories lined up for you for 2019. But this episode features two stories that were told at our most recent Story Slam only last week on January 15th. The theme of that night was tribes and we held it in association with First Fortnight as part of their unique and amazing arts festival that really is all about engaging people in conversation about mental health and using the arts to facilitate those conversations. So we were delighted to come back and take part and the theme of the evening that we chose was tribes. Now, one of those stories deals directly with mental health, but the other is more about the tribe of family, of friends, of a network of people out there trying to do good. And then our final story is one that is sure to give you a bit of a giggle, a bit of a laugh. It's kind of the quintessential, you know, pub story. So if you've ever wondered what the inside of a US prison looks like from an Irishman's perspective, make sure to stick around. But first, we're going to start today's episode with a story from a lady called Jude McCarthy. Now, Jude is an interior designer, and she's only now, at age 45, recognising the fact that she was suffering from depression. And so she tells this amazing story of getting help. And sometimes asking for help can be the biggest challenge of them all. Getting it is one thing, receiving it is another, but even just asking for it. So Jude brings us inside a psychiatric hospital and shows the actual inner workings of what it's like because on paper, on TV, in films, wherever you hear it, it's usually a very scary place and usually used as a last resort. And not a lot of people know what it's actually like to be in a psychiatric hospital getting treatment. So with that in mind, here is our very first storyteller from 2019. It's Jude McCarthy. 
I sat in front of a lovely consultant who said to me, I don't want to scare you, but you need to come into hospital and you need to come in now. Three days later, I was standing in a line, cup of water in hand, waiting to be given my medication. The consultant was a psychiatrist and the hospital was a psychiatric one. I had been battling depression for seven years and it always worked well with the doctor and some counselling and that was absolutely fine. But last year, the wheels came off completely and no matter what I did, I could not get out of it. And I ended up in a place that I never thought I would be in the darkest of places. So when she said to me I was going in to hospital... I had two kind of split feelings. It was, one was terror and the other one was relief. It was, thank God, somebody is going to help me. So in the three days before I went into the hospital, I was kind of in a complete daze. uh, And because, A, my ignorance of inpatient psychiatric care in Ireland knew no bounds. I knew absolutely nothing. All I knew was I was going in there. And that was it. Um, my uh, Thinking about it, I was thinking this is like 19th century lunatic asylum, uh, a bit of girl interrupted, and maybe one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So I was going in anyway, but this was what was in my head. So within about a minute of walking into the hospital, I knew I was going to be okay. Because the kindness that greeted me the minute I walked in that door from there and when I walked out the door was just unbelievable. So just to raise the veil for you a bit as to what goes on in a psychiatric hospital in the 21st century, um, you're basically given as much help as you need all under one roof. So you had a psychiatrist, you had a psychologist, uh, you had CBT therapy, OT, anything with a T at the end of it that had therapy... <laughs> That's what you were getting. So you were bombarded with this, which was fantastic. And that's why you were in there. It was to get you better as quickly as possible. Because if you're on the outside trying to get that help, you're talking about 18 months to two years trying to get better. So when I came out of the... I started to feel more like a human after a couple of weeks. I started to take notice of what was going on in here. And, you know, far from uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest although we did have to queue for meds, and you did get it in the little container, and you did have to take it in front of the nurses. But there was no Jack Nicholson, but there was no Nurse Ratchets either. The nurses were unbelievable, and they were your touchstone because you had them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you had a long, dark night of the soul, they were the people who were there for you. And I had some of the most amazing conversations of my lifetime with the nurses in the hospital. So it was quite amazing. And the other thing for me that really struck me was when I got so bad and so low, I had stopped thinking that depression was an illness. And I was thinking I was doing this to myself. It was my fault. I was blaming myself. So this was not helping and putting me in a very good place. So when I'm standing there realising there's 51 other people in here with depression, anxiety or bipolar... Now, I know that sounds like it's an absolute hoot in there, but believe it or not, it worked. Uh, So for me, it was like, it actually isn't your fault. You're not making this up. It's real. There are doctors here. There are, like, as I said, 51 other people trying to deal with this evil, insidious, invisible illness. So that was the first thing. It was like, oh, my God, I am not alone. With this isolating illness, 
there's a whole hospital full of people here and we're all struggling with this and we're all trying to do our very best. But the amazing thing is, it's like the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. I never had a conversation with any patient in there about depression. We talked about life, the universe and everything. Because we had so many professionals to talk to, you didn't need to talk about it. And the other thing about it was, they knew. They knew exactly how you felt. I could tell by looking at someone what kind of day they were having. And we had our meals, three meals a day, in the uh, main dining room. So if you saw that someone was missing for a day or two days, you knew they were in trouble. They were having a bad time because they were having their meals in their room. And because one of the things they always ask you is to have your meals with everyone. And that's how you meet everyone. Because every day you sit somewhere else, you meet someone else, and there's a great feeling of support within that. So if I saw someone was missing, depending on how well I knew them, the next time I'd see them, it would either be a nod of, I know, or are you okay now? That was about it. So, but the support was there. You knew the support was there. And as I said, you did not have to explain because we had all been there. Now, the other thing you get in there is a timetable. But in the middle of the timetable, and I remember seeing this so clearly, it was Wednesday, 2 o'clock, by referral only, psychotherapy group. And I remember seeing it going, God help the people who have to go to that. They are in serious trouble. So, of course, I had to go to the psychotherapy group. But it was in here that it was a real life changer for me in many ways. The, there was a maximum of five people. So it's, as you see on TV, circle of chairs, everyone sitting around, my name is, blah. Um, but you knew all these people because you'd been meeting them for, for weeks and just having the general chat. But in there, it's where you had to dig deep and you had to talk about things you really didn't want to talk about. You had to face up to things that you really rather not. But the power of the people in the room gave you the bravery to talk about these things. And I heard stories that I really would rather not have heard. Awful stories. But what I took away from it was not the awful story. What I took away from it was the bravery, the resilience of these people. How they got up every day and went about their business, carrying the weight of some of these stories on them, just inspired me. I just thought it was amazing. And suddenly I looked around. I also heard people describing feelings that I've had. I heard them describe thoughts that I had also had. And I sat there and I was in awe. And I looked at them and I said, these people are my tribe. They are my tribe. And we are battling this invisible, insidious illness that nobody wants to talk about that's under the carpet. And I just thought, Jesus, we're great. (laughs) And... Why I wanted to stand here tonight, because it is first fortnight, and I wanted to say, to hell with stigma. My name is Jude. I spent two months in a psychiatric hospital, and I found my tribe, and we are amazing. That was Jude McCarthy with a brilliant and very brave story kickstarting off the episode. Jude emailed us about the story afterwards and um, when we were talking she said that hospitalisation was never on my radar probably because it sat there like stigma personified. So on leaving I wanted to let people know that there is amazing help out there and feck the stigma. 
I think that should be the new motto for all mental health issues in Ireland is feck the stigma. And if you have been affected by any of the issues in the story or you want to find out how you yourself can seek help or maybe refer it to somebody, head over to the firstfortnight.ie website. It's a brilliant resource as well as being a guide to the festival, which keeps going on until the end of January. So a really, really brilliant way to kickstart off our year. Our next story is also from the same night and it is from Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. Now Mary-Kate is no stranger uh, to telling stories in Dublin. She is a screenwriter and when we were the Moth, she was actually the very first Grand Slam champion uh, of the Moth here in Dublin uh, back in 2015, I think it was. But what I love about this particular story was that Mary-Kate was on a deadline. But she said when she heard the theme that she just had to get out and tell the story, even though she really didn't have the time. So she popped on her bicycle, cycled down to the Sugar Club, got up on stage, delivered this amazing story and then came up at the halfway point and said, listen, guys, I'm really sorry, but I got to go. I have this deadline. And then she ended up winning the actual story slam with this story. So, unfortunately, Mary-Kate wasn't there to actually receive her little certificate and get her applause, but we did send her a recording of a big shout-out to her. So, hopefully, uh, that did make up for it. So, the story you're about to hear is uh, about a Carlos. As Carlos is not his real name, is all I'll say at the beginning. And afterwards, we're going to actually speak with Mary-Kate uh, to learn a little bit more about some of the characters in her story. Uh, but for now, this is Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. So a couple of years ago, I'm watching the news with my mother and we're watching about the refugee crisis and she looks at me and she goes, I don't know why you don't go and volunteer to help. I don't know what's holding you back. And in my head, I heard, it's not like you have a husband or children. My mother's too lovely to ever say that, but my crazy head says it. But then I thought, she's right. So I went and I called my friend Audrey, who lives in Paris and was volunteering in the camps in Calais, and she put me in touch with the organisation and I went with my best friend Jean we spent a week there. It was unbelievable, all these tribes of people, and to see the extraordinary dignity and kindness and joy even that you could see with these people going through the worst days of their lives. But I met this kid, Carlos. Um, he just turned 16. He's from Sudan. He hadn't seen his family for nine years. He knew his mother was dead. He didn't know what had become the rest of his family. And he was trying every night on the trucks to get to the UK, even though he didn't know anyone there either. And he really touched my heart. And I noticed one time, we would most of our job was picking up shit, literally. But sometimes we could bunk off and give English lessons just in some ramshackle kind of space that we called a school. And I'd meet Carlos there and try and help him. He had almost no English. But I noticed one day his shoes were falling apart. And I said, do you need a better pair of shoes? And he said, yes. And he gave me his shoe size. And he stood up to show me that his jeans were held together by a piece of string. So I got him some boots and a belt and some T-shirt and socks. And uh, after I gave them to him, he was you know, practicing his English in his notebook, but he pushed it over to me. And it said in it, I will never forget you. And I held his hand for a minute and I thought, this is why I came here, like so that he knows, so that these people know that not all Europeans fear them and hate them. Um, but I, I had to leave after a while and it was really hard to go. And the only way I could go was I said, I'll come back again. That was the beginning of September, so I'll come back again, the end of October. And um, 
I made my plans to do that, but then I got a call from Autry to say, don't come, they're bulldozing the camp. And I don't know if you remember it from the news, but they bulldozed the camp in Calais and they left behind the kids. So there were 2,000 unaccompanied minors. The Guardian said it's like the Lord of the Flies there. Um, and I knew that Carlos was one of them. So I rang Audrey and I was like, I have to come back. I have to find Carlos. And she was like, you can't. They're only letting on 30 volunteers a day, like the most hardened and experienced, which let's agree you're not, to bring food and water to the kids. And I said, well, I'd like to see them try to stop me. And she said, yeah, I've got two words for you tear gas because we had been tear gas before the French security forces who were quite liberal with their use of tear gas um, so I said well I'm going to come I'm going to come and I'm going to find him and she went and then what then what are you going to do and she said Mary Kate you're in an absolute state and if you come you're going to need help you're not going to be any help and I knew she was right and I heard of a group that was organising a candlelit vigil outside the door to say could Ireland help some of these unaccompanied minors. Like, joined that, even though it seemed really feeble. And then, amazingly, Catherine Zappone, TD, and another woman passed a bill in the doll to say that Ireland would take 10% of those minors, 200 kids. And I was like, this is it. And I was able to contact Carlos through other refugees who had phones. And I was like, would you come to Ireland if we could get you there? And the answer came back, yes, I would. And then the kids were all moved from Calais to different camps around France. And he was sent to Biscross in the south, went to France. But he was given a phone. So now we were in daily contact. And I was like, OK, stay there. I'm going to try and get you to Ireland. And I started doorstopping TDs and ministers going... Who's got the list? Who's making the list? How do I get this kid's name on the list? And I just got bounced around from one department to another, and nobody could help me. And it was coming on Christmas now, and I said to Carlos, I'll come see him, Biscaross. And he said, would you bring me a pair of shoes? Because my shoes got lost when I was leaving uh, at Calais. And I said, of course I will. But I wrote to the head of the camp at Biscaross, said I'm coming to see this kid. And I got a call from a policewoman at the prefecture near Biscaross, and she said, you may not have permission to come and see him. And I was like, can I come even for an hour? And she said no. And I didn't know what to do. And I begged her to ask her boss. And she called me back. And I was having dinner with my friend Morris that night, a couple of days before Christmas. And she said, look, I've asked my boss. And there's no way. We can't give you permission to see this kid. And I said, OK. And I said, will you go and find him and tell him it was your decision, not mine? Because I made him a promise and you're making me break it. And she said, I will. And then I called Carlos to tell him, don't expect me tomorrow. And he said, OK, you did your best. I'm going to leave this camp. They treat us terribly here. I'm going to go back to Calais and sleep in the ditches and try and get on the trucks to the UK. And I said, do not do that. There is still a chance you can get to Ireland. And he said, well, look, I know you've tried and I know you mean well, but you obviously can't help me. And I said, Carlos, don't do it. You'll break my heart. And he was crying. I was crying. Morris was having a marvellous night. (laughs) But when I got off the phone and wiped my eyes, Morris said, Okay, look, this has been your crazy deal, so I haven't wanted to get involved with it. But I actually know somebody who works with the unaccompanied minors in Ireland, and he might know something about this. So he put me in touch with this guy, and the next day this guy took time out of his busy day to talk to me, and he said, look, Mary-Kate, here's what happened. The politicians passed a bill. The civil servants will mess around with it between Ireland and France until those kids are all 18, and then they'll be you know, we'll say, oh, well, we tried. Um, And I said, okay, thanks. 
And at that stage, people started saying to me, well, what if you even got him here? Like, how would you take care of him? And I was like, yeah, you're right. My mother's right. I should have had a husband and children so I'd have a family home and I could take care of him. I'm such an idiot. And then my friend... My friend Mary rang me and she said, your sister Sarah has told me about this kid that you met in Calais. Mary-Kate, we'll take him. We already applied to be foster parents to a teenager. And I said, would you really? And she said, 100%, we would love to. Find the right authorities and tell them there's a home waiting for him. And I thought, I've made all the right choices in my life because that woman is a member of my tribe and she stepped up. And then... The next day, the guy who works with unaccompanied minors called me back and he went, Mary-Kate, I was completely wrong. We are going to get those 200 kids here and we're going to get them here really soon. And I've been put in charge of the mission. And my French counterpart just got in touch with me and he said, OK, so we're going to send you 200 kids. I'll draw up a list of names of 200 names. And Thomas said, no, 199. I've got one name already. <laughs> and in March 13th, I wish it was March 17th, but it wasn't. <laughs> On March 13th in 2017, Carlos came here. And a few months later, he went to live with Mary and her family. And he goes to school now. He calls me auntie. And his English has got immeasurably better. And I said to him, a lot of his friends did end up going to the UK. I said to him, you know... If when you're older you wanted to go to the UK, that would still be a possibility. You could do that. And he said, no. He said, the UK didn't want me. Ireland wanted me. I will be an Irishman. And with that, my tribe got bigger by one person, but infinitely richer and more beautiful and more dear to me. Thank you. That was Mary Kate O'Flanagan, who was the winner of the very first Story Slam of 2019. And she'll go on to compete with seven other Story Slam winners at our Grand Slam Championship, which takes place at the end of this year. Um, But afterwards, uh, we got talking to Mary Kate and just to let her know that she'd actually won. And she asked us to, I suppose, help her with something, really. And not so much help her, but, you know, try and help some of the people who are affected by some of the issues that she raised in the story. So I asked, first of all, about Mary-Kate by saying, as amazing as her story was, and I suppose the role that she played in it, what could an average Joe, a person on the street, do to help people like her? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What's happened now is that the people that we took from Calais will become Irish citizens and they're in the care of Tusla until they're 21. But many of them who were 16, 17 a year or two ago are now 18, 19 and they're ready to move on to the next phase of their lives. But Tusla can't move them out of the group homes because the rents in Dublin have skyrocketed. And what that means is there's a little bottleneck and we can't bring over the next wave of 14, 15 and 16 year olds because there's no place for them in the group homes. So what TUSA are looking for are people who might have a spare room. And it's not a caring situation, although if anybody wants to be a foster carer to a former refugee, that's very rewarding and a lovely experience, as Mary could tell you. But uh, they really are looking for landlords um, or, you know, somebody who can rent a room to a lodger. And the kids are, you can imagine, pretty independent. <laughs> you know, they've been fending for themselves in way more difficult situations. So they all cook really well. They all, I've never met one that didn't keep his room like a barrack room because they're so happy to have a space of their own and they take good care of their belongings. And they just need somewhere to live while they move on to work or more study. And those places are proving impossible to find. So if there's anyone out there that has a spare room, um, it's like I say, I can't emphasize enough. It's not a foster caring situation. It's just a landlord lodger situation. Might uh, hopefully you would get on well with whoever you share your own with. Um, but uh, yeah, they could get in touch with Tusla. And you can find those details if you head over to our website, www.thedublinstoryslam.com and we'll post uh, an email address and a phone number in which you can get in contact if you do have maybe a spare room or alternatively, if you know somebody who has a spare room because that's just as important as just sharing that message. So thanks a million to Mary-Kate and uh, hopefully we'll see her back at the Story Slam. How is Carlos doing today? Do you know, he is in the most fantastic school in Waterford. Uh, when we went to buy him his first school uniform, the young man who was helping us in the shop was like, oh, I go to that school. And Carlos was going into transition year. This guy was going into sixth year. But he was like, oh, I know that group of lads. They're great. He's really going to fit in well. And while Carlos was changing, I said to this young man, you know, it's not just his first time at this school. It's his first time at our school. And he was like, don't worry, I'll be looking out for him on the first day, you know, and he's going to really fit in. He's going to have a great time. And Mary and I left the shop going, well, if that young man is the product of that school, Carlos is going to be just fine. Mary Kate O'Flanagan. We've got one more story for you. And I hate to use that old time-worn cliche, but now for something completely different. So, Ray Fitzsimons is a storyteller who came to us who is one of those accidental storytellers on the night that sometimes happens at the Dublin Story Slam. So Ray was there uh, doing a video because he is uh, doing a documentary on storytelling in Ireland uh, for the Arts Council. And 
he came along and asked, look, can I come along and, you know, meet some of the storytellers, do a little interview, whatever, capture some of the magic uh, on the night. We said, no problem. Then something weird happened. We were kind of running a little bit low on names in the hat. So I said to Ray, Ray, sure, you wouldn't maybe pop your own name in the hat. And so completely out of nowhere, he said that he had never really told this story before. He got up uh, on stage. He was the last person, last name out of the hat and delivered this absolutely ripping, brilliant, larger than life uh, story of his adventures uh, in the US. So this is Ray Fitzsimons. In 1997, I went over to America. Uh, not like to make a million, but uh, just sort of, because I got sort of shot out the other end of the rave scene and just wanted to just, you know, leave, just leave. Uh, and a, an adventure, an adventure, you know. Uh, so I flew into New York and um, pretended I was a carpenter and got fired immediately. And the second job, I, I lasted a little bit longer. And by the third job, I was actually a carpenter. I don't know how that happened. It's a true story. I stayed in New York two years and then I went over to Chicago for uh, about six months. Um, I had an uncle there. He, he slave labored me for a while and then I shot over to San Francisco and I liked that town as well. But it was another big American city and I, I didn't want to see another one of them. So I, I ended up going to a place called Tucson, Arizona because uh, I was going to go through South America and round the world that way, right? So I arrive in Tucson in the middle of the summer, uh, 110 degrees. What the fuck did I just do? Um, and then I got a job in a building site and completely fried. <clears throat> um, okay, so I'm living there and Arizona's great, but I'm thinking it's time to go. But then I meet a woman, as you, you tend to do, and she was absolutely amazing. Um, and we went out for, for three years. So I'm three years later, I'm still in Arizona. And then we break up as these things happen. And uh, I went on the beer. <laughs> Uh, later on that night, about four in the morning, I'm heading through a supermarket and I trip over a cardboard box and I get into an argument with the, with the manager and five minutes later, I'm in the back of a squad car. Uh, and I spend the night in jail. No, but before I went to jail, actually, in the, in the, in the, <laughs> in the, in the place, before you go to jail, like the station or whatever, uh, I says, what's going to happen? This is, look at misdemeanor. We'll be done with you, you know, a night in jail, you'll be grand. And then they went, oh, no, 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 this guy's got an INS hold. And I says, what does that mean? And I knew. I was completely illegal. I, I'd been there for six years and uh, working and driving, and it was mad. But uh, now, now I was caught. And I says, what's going to happen? They says, well, you're going to go to Florence, Arizona. Uh, in the morning, I was picked up by a van, and I was driven into the middle of the desert to a place called Florence, Arizona, which was a concentration camp, basically, built to house the Japanese during World War II, and now it has been used as a um, detention center for mostly South American drug dealers. Uh, no, ordinary South Americans as well, but a lot of drug dealers, a lot of killers, a lot of people from... They spent 25 years in prison, tattoos on their faces. But they were separated from me, because I was in blue overalls. I was a nice guy. <laughs> I'm from Kinnelechlech, you know, never been in trouble in my life. That's in Cavan, by the way. Never been in trouble, and here I am now in, in blue overalls, and there's guys in orange overalls. They're, they're the violent offenders and the drug dealers, and then the guys in the red, as I said, are the, the murderers, right? But we're separated. I can only be in contact with the orange guys. The orange guys can be in contact with the red. Anyway, after breakfast the f first morning, uh, you go out to the yard. You have two hours in the yard. I'm out in the yard, and there's the only, really the only other white guy there was this uh, guy called Sinka. 
I think it was a Latvian uh, national. Um, he was 78 at the time or something. <laughs> but anyway, he's, he's seen me. And, but before I got into our conversation, he'd, he was actually an American war hero. He'd fought in two wars and was decorated. And it was by a bureaucratic mess he ended up after running drugs across the border. Uh, <laughs> after doing his time for that, he actually was, they were going to send him back to Latvia. Um, and he said to me, where are you from? I says, Ireland. He goes, oh, you're not South American. I hate South Americans. <laughs> Do you want a job? Which is, and I goes, a job? Yeah. And he goes, yeah, can you cut hair? I says, I can. He says, after lunch, you go in, you fill out a requisition form, you say, I, I'm barber on the outside, and I, I'd like to cut hair and, you know, uh, and spend my time uh, productively inside. <clears throat> I did. And after breakfast the next morning, Ray Fizzymuzz, Fitzsimons, you idiot. <laughs> You're wanted out in the yard. So I go out to the yard, and next thing you know, there I am with this war hero who's now really respected by the guards because they know his story. He's like, do you want a donut? Guard, get him a donut. And I'm like going, hey, man, things are looking up. So I'm in the yard. What we do is basically clean up all the fag butts and water the, the grass, hand out footballs and chessboards. As each pod gets their time out in the yard, you spend, we spent the whole day out there. It was kind of cool. But I got to know who everybody was, all the guys with the tattoos and, the, you know, some guys were in there for money laundering and they'd tell me how to money launder. That was kind of weird. Other guys would make crystal meth, and I know how to do that. Um, <laughs> anyway, a couple of days go by, and next thing you know, I look over, and it's like, hey. And myself and an Iraqi guy who was out there as well look over, and there's two A-frames coming rolling towards us. And I says, what's that thinking? And thinking goes, today you work. I'm like going, oh, fuck, yeah. I forgot, completely forgot about the hairdressing. <laughs> next thing you know, they, they pull off the thing, and there's no scissors allowed in there. You, you can imagine, you know, what the... So two chairs are put out, and uh, the Iraqi guy gets one chair, and he's actually a barber. <laughs> I got my chair, and I'm, I'm copying him. I'm like, you know. <laughs> and in the meantime, like cattle coming in for um, for um, feed, I've got 50 South American, ranging from really nice lads to killers, <laughs> looking at me, getting excited because it's their day to get their hair cut. <laughs> I start to shake. As you can imagine, um, I put down in the chair, and I'm, I look over at the Iraqi guy, and he's like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, going, holy fuck. And who comes walking towards the chair? Only the most violent guy in the place. He's got four tattoos. He shot four black guys in New York in 1992, or no, 1982, over some drug deal gone wrong. And he sat, he comes up to me, and he goes, hey, hombre, next week, I go back to my country and I see my family for the first time in 25 years. <laughs> okay, I want a one, a two, a three, and at the top I want to go, pow! <laughs> I was like, yeah, 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 have a seat there, yeah. Iraqi guy's like going, ah, you're screwed now. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I swear to God, with the, with the hair buzzers, you know, the, you're supposed to go. Nye. I was like cutting one hair at a time. 
Yeah, that one's okay. Yeah, that's okay. About a half an hour later, I finally have the balls to say to him, I, I, I'm finished. <laughs> he gets up and he grabs the metal mirror because there's you know, like glass in the thing. And he's like, oh. And he turns around and he literally grabs my head. He goes, hombre, amigo, you spent extra time on me, man. Thank you so much. And he kissed me. Mwah, mwah. Suddenly, the terror had just transcended into a type of terror that sort of becomes no terror. <laughs> As he walked off, I goes, next! <laughs> and this poor little skinny Mexican sits in front of me with a lovely head of hair. And I was like, wee, 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 wee. And I looked over at the Iraqi guy and he goes, eh, <laughs> yeah, this is fun! Get off the chair, next! A month and a half later, I, I eventually got my flight home to Ireland. It, it, it took a minimum, a minimum of a month and a half. And I arrived home in my hometown, and I'm walking, and I, and I, I don't tell the story. This is, this is actually one of the first times I've ever, you know, told the story. Uh, and I'm wondering what to do with myself, you know. And I'm walking on Main Street, and, and I actually pass a window, and I'm looking, and it says, Help Wanted. And I looked up, it was a barber shop. <laughs> and I went, no. Nah. <laughs> I hate to spoil the memory. <laughs> Thanks very much. That was Ray Fitzsimons finishing off our very first podcast for 2019. And if you haven't already, make sure to go back and listen to some of our other episodes uh, from 2018. Our next Story Slam is on February 12th. The theme is a rather saucy one. Uh, It's sex. So if you have a story that you would like to share to us, it could be the literal translation of the word sex, or it could be all about gender. Head over to the website to find out more information. And we'll be back next month with three brand new stories for you. So thanks a million for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. Have a great one. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.